Hello, welcome to the Ponderings Podcast. This is your host, Milo. And in this episode, I'm going to be going over the second lecture, Expression, in Alfred North Whitehead's Modes of Thought. So I'm going to go ahead and begin. On page 20, Alfred North Whitehead quotes, Something is to be diffused throughout the environment, which will make a difference. So expression presupposes importance. This means that there must be something that is distinguishable beforehand for it to be considered of interest or of importance. And Whitehead distinguishes these two notions. So importance for Whitehead is monistic, universal, infinite, um, sort of encompassing everything. Whereas expression is finite, pluralistic, singular, It has to do with the um, individual occasions, the finite occasions impressing themselves onto their environment as opposed to importance, which has to do with the infinite. Expression is selective. Expression is personal, and it essentially belongs to the individual, whereas importance, although specific, can be generalized as a universal that applies to all. Whitehead likens the notion of expression to the notion of diffusion, specifically that which is akin to diffusion in physics. So think of an expression as moving from an area of high concentration, which is would be you in this case, to an area of low concentration, which is the universe, the environment. Your expression emanates from you individually, but it imprints or leaves an impression on the environment that you're in. We can think of expression in that case as entanglement. On page 22, he writes, the human body is that region of the world which is the primary field of human expression, unquote. The world is intimately entwined. Our bodies are part of the environment, but we identify our bodies as ours or reflective of our individual experience. However, the body is continuous with the environment. Whitehead uses an example of a molecule to illustrate this point. If we look at a single molecule, it is a part of nature. Maybe it started as a distant molecule in the form of a gas, and then it has entered our body through our lungs or through eating a vegetable. Whitehead asked, at what exact point is it part of the body? Our membranes are open, and the exactness of our boundaries are trivial at best, meaning we can never be certain or have complete certainty about the boundary between what is considered strictly the body and what is the environment. Whitehead likens expression to aliveness. Whitehead states that wherever expression occurs in nature, that region is considered to be alive. Expression has to issue from each of its parts. So I'm going to quote a large section on page 23 that illustrates this really well. So quote, The body is composed of various centers of experience, imposing the expression of themselves on each other. Feeling or prehension is the reception of expressions. Thus, the animal body is composed of entities, which are mutually expressing and feeling. 
Expressions are data for feeling, diffused in the environment, and a living body is a peculiarly close adjustment of these two sides of experience, expression and feeling. By reason of this organization, an adjusted variety of feelings is produced in the supreme entity, which is the animal considered as one experiencing subject, end quote. So to put it in more plain words, the human body, in our case, is what encompasses the subject or the subjective unity of experience, the supreme entity, that supreme feeling. And this supreme feeling, the subject, is made up of all other smaller entities, such as organ systems, nervous systems, and those are composed of even smaller entities, cells, molecules, etc. And all these entities express themselves, and through their expression, they interact and interconnect with every other entity and their expressions. A human being is an organization of all these complex expressions happening in the same region. So thinking back with the higher concentration and the lower concentration. So there's a high concentration of expressiveness within the human body or within an animal body or within uh, you know, a plant or within rocks. And the complexity of that expression determines consciousness or determines how complex the reaction or response to the environment is, which I'll get to um, as we go along. But yeah, so the more complex the body is, the more complex the mind or consciousness of the entity is because the more complex these expressions are that pertain to this single organized entity in the case for like human body or animal body. So that being said, I'm going to distinguish animal body versus vegetable body. The animal body has a capacity for a hierarchical center of experience, meaning that the parts which make up the animal body have their own centers of experience. So that would be like the individual organs, the brain, the nervous system. But they ultimately all work in conjunction for the higher center of experience which is the animal body as a whole. So conversely, in the case for vegetables and plants, their bodily organization lacks a center of experience. So Whitehead likens the vegetable body to a democracy, that it can, quote, be subdivided into smaller democracies, which easily survive without much apparent loss of functional expression, unquote. A vegetable can have many parts, or even the majority of the plant can be cut off but still manage to survive or regenerate and continue to live. Whereas an animal body cannot survive if the organization of the parts is no longer connected. Like we cannot live without a heart or lungs or brain to send signals, receive signals from the nervous system. So plants, they don't have this um, center of experience, this ultimate center of experience. Whereas animal bodies, human bodies, all the organs sort of respond to work, they sort of coordinate to um, express or produce this sort of um, what we would call a soul, but it's not really a, a soul. It's what we would call the subjective unity of experience. They sort of produce a center of experience. So with that higher complexity comes more routine and more organization 
and with that um like and with that added amount of routine and organization is less adaptability to change so what do i mean by this um so if we're thinking of vegetables or even insects like ants they function in the form of a democracy this allows them to easily adapt and change to new situations novel situations in the environment the animal body which you know we're including humans in this for now however has a lesser capacity to adapt to novelty for instance the heart has its own rhythm that it must stay within in order for it to function this is also also true for the other subordinate systems in the animal body like the lungs liver digestive tract nervous system the animal body has many rhythms that it must follow in order for the whole organization to survive if the coordination collapses then the animal dies novelty which is the introduction of new things is received by the animal body as a whole but because the animal body must follow its subordinate rhythms and its subordinate organization it the animal body's capacity for novelty or change is limited so i'm going to explain the distinction between you know all the different aggregates the animal the you know vegetable human and even the non-living he Whitehead divides nature into four aggregates. So the non-living aggregation, the aggregate, it is expressed in the formal sciences, you know, just molecules, chemicals, um, the elements, things like that. This would be considered the inorganic and it is dominated by the average. It lacks individual expression. Their selection is sporadic and ineffective and the structure of non-living aggregates they survive because of the emission of average expressions so it's very the expressions are very minimal there's they're there but they're minimal there's not really a pattern to them and they don't really produce um much they produce enough to sort of have an average amount of expression the vegetable aggregate comes after this it has a little more organization it's a democracy of purposeful influences coming from its parts so there's more purpose or intention happening in a vegetable aggregate than in a non-living aggregate so it's similar to the non-living in that it has an average emission of expressions but these expressions are more organized and they're dominated by the structure of its bodily formation So it has individuality that is coordinated by the democracies and the individuality of expression is strictly limited to the parts. So the vegetable it doesn't have a an individual whole, a subjective whole. It more so has indiv- it has parts that work together like a democracy, but if a whole part was taken out or like if a bunch of parts were taken out it would still survive it would still continue and that's where it differentiates it from the animal and the human so the next one the animal aggregation has at least one central actuality that is supported by the coordinated bodily functioning so the concept of importance starts to show in this aggregate but its focus is of mere survival and then the human grade it immensely extends the concept of importance by introducing novelty of function 
as an essential component of importance. So morals, ideals, and religions arise in the human aggregate. Um, morality can be seen in the animal grade, but not religion. So morality for animals would be like maybe not killing uh, their own kind, things like that, or working together in a group for the survival of the animal's family, taking care of their young. But then humans sort of um, go a, um, a step forward, creating ideals, universal ideals, universal religions, um, universal codes of morality. There's They kind of extend this further. Um, and religion emphasizes a unity of ideal that is inherent in the universe, whereas animals do not have the capacity to think in universals. So why can humans introduce novelty and animals can't? So this has to do with the concept of imagination. Uh, humans have the conceptual power to imagine and then the practical power to put these imaginations into effect. So creating tools, technology, etc. Of course, like, you know, monkeys have the ability to sort of create some tools, but humans have a greater capacity for that. So it has to do with the complexity of um, the expressions that are going on. So, for instance, humans have a more complex nervous system. They have a more complex um, connectivity between their neurons and things like that, which give them the ability to have a more complex consciousness, a more complex conceptual power to imagine and think outside the box and things like that. Humans not only aim to survive, but we also aim to have a, quote, diversified, worthwhile experience, unquote. Interest and importance are main drive to discriminate the sense data. So, you know, the things that we sense and perceive from the environment. In other words, novelty is driven by our desire to distinguish what is relevant from what is irrelevant in our environment. And although animals have this ability to sort of pick out what's relevant and irrelevant in their environment, they're not so focused on having a an intensity of experience, a pleasurable experience, a worthwhile, meaningful experience. Humans are the ones that are concerned with that. Animals are concerned with surviving, but humans are concerned with, again, that diversified, worthwhile experience. And language can be seen as a triumph in novelty for humans. Language fuels our imaginative capacity because it expresses one's past into one's present. Language is created by the inner workings of our organic existence, so lungs and throat produce sound, things like that. This inner working not only expresses our organic existence in the present, but also our past existence, past feelings, emotions, events, etc. In turn, the fragmentary past experiences expressed in language can be recombined into a novel imaginative experience. So language increases imagination because it is the systematization of expressions. More specifically, each language emerges and encompasses a historic tradition and embodies the civilization of expression in the social systems that use it. 
So yeah, languages come from the cultures or the environment from which it is expressed. Ultimately, language is an expression of thought, but it's not the essence of thought. So what is the essence of thought? We can begin by talking about the function of language. Language serves the purposes of freedom of our bodily bondage, meaning that we can use language to free our thoughts from being tied to mood and circumstance. We can abstract our thoughts, right? But thought is not an abstract thing itself. Like thought itself is not abstract. Whitehead states that pure thought is a tremendous mode of excitement, like when a stone is thrown into a pond causing ripples. So the feelings or sensations emanating throughout our entire body give rise to thoughts. And language, it just serves as a symbolic expression of these feelings or prehensions. The ripples release the thought, but at the same time, the thought augments and distorts the ripples. In order to understand thought, Whitehead says that we must understand its relations to the ripples amid which it emerges. So here we see a sort of dynamic um, causality or, or circular causality happening. The ripples, the feelings that permeate our entire body are what creates thoughts. And then language serves as a way to systematize the thoughts, systematize those expressions, and then to sort of abstract the thoughts and Im imagine new possibilities, new expressions, new thoughts, which then affect and produce ripples in our body because we're feeling the effects of these new thoughts. So it's a very dynamic and circular thing that happens. On page 38, Whitehead says, language arose with a dominating reference to an immediate situation, unquote. This reaction to that situation in this environment. Whitehead says that we have to understand language as a product of the environment or social community it emerges from. It presupposes a particular reference in a particular environment. Spoken language comes from the immediacy of social discourse. In contrast, written language is an abstraction of spoken language. It can be read at diverse times and in diverse places. This abstraction is responsible for the advancements in civilization, but it also leads away from the realities of the immediate world. Language is entangled with the rise of human experience. So expression emerges from the ripples of action and reaction, and this action and reaction gave rise to a complex subjective consciousness, which then gave rise to language. Whitehead ends his lecture by stating that the mentality of mankind and the language of mankind created each other. So language really played a huge role in the advancement of our cognition of the way we interact with the environment and the way we interact with ourselves in reference to the environment. Well, that's all I have for this lecture. I hope this episode was able to clarify some things in his expression lecture in his book, Modes of Thought. The next episode will be on his lecture, Understanding. And that'll be the last one in his section of creative impulse. So thank you for listening.